Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakya. About 10 years ago, I was at the local basketball gym, um, not remembering to act my age. And I thought it'd be great to jump into a game with some high schoolers. And I went up to block a shot and I came down on someone's ankle. And uh, embarrassingly, I was wheelchaired out of uh, the Lifetime Fitness in Mason, Ohio, with my wife and kids laughing at me. Um, I did rush to see my integrative physician uh, at the um, Dr. Stephen Moyles at the Alliance Integrative Center in Cincinnati. In addition to the acupuncture, he pulled out this little box and put these electrodes on me and programmed it, and then he sent me home with it. And that was the beginning of my curiosity with regards to frequency-specific microcurrent. And it certainly helped accelerate the healing of my torn lateral uh, ligament in my ankle. And at that point, I made a mental note that I wanted to really dive into it at some point in my career. Fast forward now to uh, 2020, and I've talked about on my podcast, my own struggles with my low back. And I ran into my friend, uh, Marty Keston, a licensed massage therapist in, in Charlotte. And in addition to doing his typical massage, he introduced me to a combination of FSM and PEMF. And that really also got the ball rolling in my mind. And Today, I want to dedicate this episode to Marty uh, for sparking my interest, and my friend Marty did recently pass away unexpectedly, and he remains in my heart, and Marty, this one's for you. So guys, I'm delighted today on such a short notice to bring to you an interview with the queen of frequency-specific microcurrent, Dr. Carol McMakin. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I love hearing stories like that. Yeah, and it's just... You know, when you're a physician and you have a busy life and you're seeing a busy clinic, sometimes we don't create enough space to explore our own curiosities. And one of the cool things about running this podcast is it has allowed me to dive into things that some people wouldn't necessarily consider standard, but it's being done to great uh, great effectiveness and certainly being talked about. So it's, I'm just tickle pink to have uh, really uh, the national or if, if not international expert on the topic. So the goal for today is to really explore FSM, introduce it to people who've never heard about it before, and uh, just get your general thoughts on the relevant points that you want to share. Before we do that, let me introduce you to the listeners. Carolyn McMakin decided to pursue her lifelong dream at the age of 40 when she started pre-med and enrolled in Western States Chiropractic College. Go girl, that's awesome. After beginning her practice, she taught a course at Portland State University on the diagnosis and treatment of fibromyalgia and myofascial pain and began seeing a much more complex pain patient population. In 1996, she began treating these patients using frequencies resurrected from a list created in the 1920s, and after teaching these frequencies and treatment protocols to determine if they are reproducible, she presented her results at the American Back Society National Meeting and published the first of 50 cases of neck pain treatment in August of 1998. Subsequently, she discovered that there was a specific treatment protocol that would eliminate the full body pain of fibromyalgia associated with spine trauma in about one hour. And these results were reproducible, and she's continued to present cases and teach seminars all over the world since then, teaching physicians, chiropractors, physical therapists, and practitioners the technique of frequency-specific microcurrent. She's an author and authored Frequency-Specific Microcurrent and Pain Management, and then published in 2017 her second book, The Resonance Effect. And by all accounts, she's extremely accomplished, and her attention and time is sought after, and I'm I'm very happy to have you today. So again, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. This is fun. FSM, my favorite thing to talk about. Absolutely. Your bio is is great, and I want to ask before we get into the topic of it, just a couple questions so people can get to know you a little better. Number one, can you share a little bit about what was the the change in your life around the age of 40 where you decided you want to get into the medical profession? 
because there has to be something that compelled you to do that at that point in your life. And then number two, kind of like, what has it been like to be teaching this on a regular basis? And what what do you hope to accomplish long-term with it? Well, the first question is the book, The Resonance Effect, is the full story. But I was 39, and we were moving from San Diego, my husband and I, and my three-year-old and seven-year-old, moving to Portland, and he was going to go to chiropractic college. And on a Saturday, I had lunch with my friend and told her what we were about to do, and she put her glass down and looked at me across the table and said, that's really stupid. And I said, excuse me? She said, "You've he just wants a job. You've wanted to be a doctor since you were seven. You've wanted to be a doctor for as long as I've known you. You should go to chiropractic college too. And I said, well, that, that would be fine, but I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. How would I do that? And she said, I don't know how you're going to do it, but it's stupid if you don't. It's like, okay. And this is true. I was reading my girlfriend's brother's medical books when I was seven years old, sitting in her living room. And then I was a pharmaceutical salesman from the for 16 years, from the age of probably 23 to 39, 38. So then on Sunday, when my husband was at work, I took the children and I went to church and the minister was giving a sermon on vocations. Now, you have to know that throughout my 20s, I tried to do pre-med courses so I could somehow get back into medicine. And it just, at 28, I finally gave up. Just close the door. It's done. It's just not going to happen in this lifetime. So you go to church and the sermon is on vocations and the minister said, if there is a what in your life that you are called to do and you're clear about that, you do the what and you let God worry about how, how is not your job. At that moment, it's like this door that I'd closed on myself went flying open and it was like the sun came out and I went home and I told Ben, it's like, guess what? I'm going to go to chiropractic college too. And he said, how? I said, I don't know. How is not my job? And it says, if from that day to this, everything I needed just showed up, it didn't always look like what I thought it was going to look like, but it showed up. So my senior year, junior year, my mom got pancreatic cancer. I took three months off of school, took care of her until she passed. And just for a lot of reasons, Ben and I got divorced and I met George Douglas in July. I knew him from chiropractic college. He was supervising the rehab of my shoulder from a skiing accident. And George and I got to be friends. Eventually, after I got divorced, we became partners. And he had worked with an osteopath from England, who bought a practice in 1946 that came with a machine that was built in 1922, and that machine came with a list of frequencies. So there were seven, 8,000 physicians in the U.S. using frequency medicine between about 1908 and 1925, and it was widely used. Well, the Flexner Report came out, drug companies and the FDA were formed, and frequency medicine, resonance medicine, homeopathy, herbs, nutrition basically were all outlawed, and drugs and surgery and radiation were the only tools that were allowed for medical physicians, and anybody that used any of these alternative things. By 1925, they began prosecuting them And by 1935, the people that did all the research were dying out. The devices were either in the back room covered up with a sheet, grandfather's library, and all the research about how these people developed the frequencies, that went away. 
And in the rare book room, we found, so George came home with the list and stuck it in a drawer. In 1995, when I started chiropractic college, he was moving his office and found the list. So I started with a list of frequencies, literally. And there's a list for conditions like removing inflammation or increasing secretions or taking out scar tissue. And there's frequencies for tissues like the fascia, nerves, the spinal cord. So I started with the list. And we had a two-channel microcurrent device. And George had worked with Harry Van Gelder in 1983 for a period of time. So George knew how this osteopath used the frequencies on the old machine. And we started treating myofascial pain in 97. We actually had 150 cases that I presented at the American Bank Society. I published 50 head, neck, and face pain, and then later on published 25 low back cases, 25 nerve pain cases. So that was 96, 97 was mostly muscle pain. 98, we figured out how to treat neuropathic pain. In 99, I stumbled across a frequency combination that would take away the full body pain associated with fibromyalgia. So if you have pain from your neck to your feet and you're hypersensitive everywhere, what's the only tissue that connects everything? Well, it has to be the spinal cord. I have a frequency for that. What's wrong with that spinal cord? Well, it's inflamed. So on one patient, she just leaned up against me. I put a contact around her neck because you have to get at the exiting nerve roots in the neck and contact under her feet. And in about five minutes, she started to relax. Her blink rate slowed down. And in 60 minutes, she was pain-free. And then I did it again. And then I did it again. And over 1999, I did, we had 27 cases. And I happened to get invited because one of once I started publishing papers in myofascial pain, one of the physiatrists at NIH had been treated with FSM, was in charge of selecting speakers for grounds in building 10 NIH. And he invited me to speak in um, I think it was February or March. And so I presented the 27 cases. They come in with their pain was an average of a 7.4. They left with their pain at an average of a 1.3. If they stuck with treatment for about two to three months, being treated twice a week, we kept their pain down below a four. Their central sensitization, adrenal function, digestion, all reverted to normal and the fibromyalgia was gone in three months. So I presented these cases at NIH and I said to 45 doctors in front of me, white coats, pocket protectors. And I said, I've done this 27 times. It's completely reproducible. Here's, here's the pain diagram. Here's the physical exam findings that have to be present for this to be the cause of fibromyalgia. And nobody's going to believe me unless we have something objective that somebody can measure. So Terry Phillips was new at NIH, and he's a microimmunochemist. And he said, you send me a spot of blood on blotter paper, and I can tell you what's changing. So he sent me the blotter paper. I called a patient that had not been, I treated her the year before and couldn't help her, two years before and couldn't help her. So I called her up and I said, would you mind if I did this little finger stick and tried this new thing on you. And she said, no, sure. So we did that. And that was, had to be May. And as I was headed out to give this lecture, energy medicine in energy medicine and clinical practice at the Institute for Functional Medicine International Symposium, 
as I was headed out to go to the airport, the fax machine came across and there were all these values that changed. Now, this was 2000. It was before Google. There was no medical library at the hotel in Phoenix where I was headed. So there's all these cytokines that change by factors of 10 and 20 times, substance P, um, CGRP, all of these factors just change at logarithmic rates. So my lecture was scheduled for the next afternoon. And Jeff Bland, who's the biochemist PhD who started the Institute for Functional Medicine, was coming out of the hotel. And I handed him the list. I said, Jeff, look what I just got. And he looked down at it and his hands started shaking. And I went, hmm. He said, you have to run a long way to get those changes in endorphins because the endorphins went from eight to 88 in 60 minutes. And that's universal. The patients get so stoned after 30 minutes that they can't talk. I said, yeah, but there's, are these changes easy? Can you do them with aspirin? He said, call Michael Ruff. He and Candace Pert work on cytokines and he's still in the office. So here's his office number. Give him a call. So I called Michael Ruff and I said, Dr. Ruff, this is Dr. McMakin. And I've got these numbers. And Dr. Bland said to call you. I need to know if these changes in cytokines are significant. And he said, okay, what are the numbers? And I said, well, interleukin-1 goes from 256 down to 21. And he got really quiet and he said, what time frame? And I said, 60, 90 minutes. And he said, that's impossible. Cytokines are hard to change. And when they change, they change slowly over months. It's like, and I was like a puppy. It's like, no, they don't. They don't change like that. What do you mean? Well, interleukin-1, 6, 8, 10-F-alpha, interferon gamma, CGRP, they all change. Substance P changes, and substance P is only produced in the spinal cord. I mean, it's produced peripherally, but it's produced in the spinal cord. So we knew that the tissue, and that was from David Perlmutter, that since substance P changed by literally a factor of 10 times, we knew we were addressing the spinal cord. So I presented that data the next day, and it took us five years and five different journals to get that paper published because at first we called it resolution of fibromyalgia, and nobody wanted to hear that 58% of these patients recovered. Fibromyalgia is curable. So I started teaching in 97 to find out if it was reproducible. I kept teaching because it would be immoral not to when you can get people out of pain like this, nerve pain, peripheral neuropathies, wound healing, your new injuries. Then I treated Terrell Owens when he fractured his leg in 2005, and that got me into sports medicine and new injury treatment. So it took me five years and about 30,000 patient visits before I believed that the frequencies always do what they are described as doing, and they only do that. So if it doesn't work, it's because you're thinking about it the wrong way. Over the last 10 years, we've found out that it's almost never the muscle. We think it's the muscle because that's what you can feel, but especially in the cervical spine, the upper cervical muscles are tight because, and in order to get them to relax, you have to treat the upper cervical facets. You have to treat the alar ligament for being a little bit lax and uneven to get the suboccipital muscles to relax. Then you treat the upper cervical facets. And the lower cervical muscles are almost always tight and sore because of a disc bulge. So the standard protocol now, we do nothing for the muscle, hardly ever, unless it's scarred to a nerve or the kidney or the ureter. And it's been 25 years and I still 
in the last five years have treated things that are simply impossible. There's like, it's not impossible once you do it. There's a protocol that the only thing it's good for is thalamic pain after a thalamic stroke and phantom limb pain. Same frequency because it's when you cut a nerve as when you amputate a leg, it's the thalamus starts humming to itself. It's not getting input from the nerve from the amputated leg. So it doesn't do any good to treat the leg. That's the problem. The problem is that the thalamus has no input. So our protocol for phantom limb pain is to quiet the activity of the thalamus. Same thing with a thalamic stroke. First thalamic stroke patient I treated was in 1999, 2000, someplace like that. And I told him it wasn't going to work. And then it worked in 30 minutes. He was out of pain. So that's why I keep teaching. Wow. And if that hasn't piqued your interest listening now, I don't know what will. Let me back up the truck a little bit, okay? Because I live, I'm a physiatrist and I I practice at one of the country's largest neurosurgical groups. So I live in a physical world, right? We stick needles through things. We do uh, surgeries with precision. So for someone who heard what you just said, an obvious question is going to be, and you may be so far advanced now, I'm going to challenge and see if you can explain this, but what on earth do we mean by cellular resonance or frequencies of tissues? Explain that to people. That's a really good question because I started with a list. The, the thing that I had to get over, I'm a scientist. That's my training. I was a pharmaceutical rep. My degree is in physiologic psychology, so there's that. And I love physics. Pre-med physics was like so much fun. When you look at how a cell operates and you read Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life by Jerry Pollack, you find out that the outside of the cell is not a lipid layer. They lied when they told you that in biology. It's covered with receptors, and those receptors have little, I'm putting my fingers up like little antenna, and those antenna are built to receive things like circulating cytokines or inflammatory peptides, pathogen-associated molecular patterns, so little pieces of bacteria, and damage-associated molecular patterns. They land on that receptor. That receptor is connected to kinases inside the cell that are connected to the DNA, that are connected to the RNA, that are connected to the microRNA, and that determines what the cell secretes. So it's the frequencies that we use are all too low. They're below 1,000 hertz. So it's not possible for frequencies that low to change biological tissue. It is apparent, and the only thing that makes sense of all of the data that we have, clinical data and the cytokine data, took us really 12 years to come up with a hypothesis that makes sense. The frequencies appear to interact with these cell membrane receptors the way that your key fob interacts with your car door. So if you take two or four ibuprofen. Those ibuprofen aren't just magic. They land on this receptor like a cantaloupe. They change the receptor. And when they change the receptor like a cantaloupe, it changes what the cell does and reduces the cell's output of inflammation. That's how Advil works. That's, That's chemistry. Physics, so you can open your car door with a key. But these days, you can open your car door with a key fob that is tuned exactly and only to your car. You've got 12 gray Subarus all in a row, and you own one of them. You hit your key fob, and it's only your car that blinks its lights and unlocks the doors. It does that with a specific frequency. The frequencies appear to work, and the only thing that explains the cytokine data 
for all of us, and I mean physicists and biophysicists and physicians and physiologists and neurologists all over the world that have been working on this since we got the data in 2000. The only thing that makes sense is that we're changing cell signaling with a frequency. It's biophysics. The hard part, the part I have trouble with, and I just have to let it go, is how somebody in 1922, how they knew that 396 hertz was the frequency that will resonate with the nerve, but 562 hertz is the frequency for the sympathetics. So this week, I had a patient that had disc bulges from T4, middle of his thoracic spine, to T8. He had loss of sensation at those nerve root levels. And he had a feeling of anxiety that just really bothered him. He graduated from the Naval Academy. He was in active duty for two years. And he's four years out of the military. And he has all this pain and all this anxiety. So I got the nerve pain down, but he still had anxiety. So I treated 396 the nerve. Well, the next day when I saw him, I treated 506, reduced the activity of 40 on channel A and 562 hertz on channel B for the sympathetic nervous system. He fell asleep on the table. And when he woke up, the anxiety was gone and it stayed gone for two days. So it's applied biophysics. It's not magic. It just looks like magic. And if you have ever used a key fob to open your car door instead of a key, you've used applied biophysics, right? Yeah. The only problem is, and there's no answer for it because all of that research was lost by 1940, 1950. It just, it's gone. So how did somebody in, so when they treated your ankle, they treated 100 hertz for the ligament. 191 hertz for the round tendons and 77 hertz for the connective tissue. How did somebody in 1922 decide or find out that those frequencies would apply to those tissues? Nope. They never know. No, there's so you just have to kind of the lot, the just have to go with it. And I tell my students that what we're involved in is clinical research because. To this day, I do things that I have not done before. You take somebody with spastic diplegia. So I work at Cleveland Clinic. You did on the, I teach seminars on the weekend and then stay and work in the clinic for two days. Well, we had a 22-year-old that had cerebral palsy since birth. And it was just waist down. So it was just one part of the brain that was associated. Well, you're a physiatrist, you understand that descending inhibition, there are signals that come down from the brain through the spinal cord, that send descending inhibition that make spasticity go away. First time I'd ever done it. It's like, I wonder if we increase secretions in the spinal cord, what will happen? Well, in 60 minutes, he was no longer spastic. We had to teach him to walk again. That's a good phase. And I've done it so many times now. It's part of what you feel for when somebody has a cervical disc and you are planning on doing a C-spine fusion, they need that. But if it's a central disc, it affects descending inhibition because it it inflames the motor pathways. Sure. Set up our motor neuron lesion. Yep. So you run increased secretion. So you feel... They're pectineus, the brevis, and the quadriceps, so the upper leg muscles, and they're going to have increased tone. You run increased secretions in the spinal cord, that tone goes to normal. The reason I think this is such an important conversation is because someone may say, Sanjeev, you work in a surgical group. Why are you talking about some of these different treatments? Um, And you've touched on some conditions that we have no answers for. So for example, so I diagnose in my clinic probably on a monthly basis, probably five cases of cervical myelopathy where someone comes in, they've got cord compression and we get them seen. They have amazingly successful surgery. 
And then, you know, the question then becomes, am I going to get better? And our standard talking point is basically the surgery is going to prevent you from getting worse. Time will tell if you get better. And I literally have nothing else I can do to accelerate that process. I've looked into things like peptides and I've tried those for some people. Uh, we I do a lot of acupuncture in the clinic and it does give them some temporary reprieve. But you're touching on some patient groups that there's no home for. And the world of pain management, in particular in the United States, um, has many, many challenges. So I think it behooves us to explore with vigor reports like this. And certainly, this is beyond anecdotal. I mean, you have data now supporting it, and you're giving my listeners the scientific rationale for it. And for anyone who's interested, we're going to link to your website, and you've got a whole list of references on your website, research articles. We're going to link to your books for people, and certainly your training course for clinicians who are interested in doing that. Yeah, when she, uh, folks, when she mentioned that the, uh, the spastic diplegic patient was able to stand up and move, my eyes popped out of the head because it's just not something you would envision, unfortunately, in, you know, from a traditional paradigm and lens. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's just that that's actually part of why FSM has survived. And that's because I followed the rules. As a pharmaceutical rep, I knew what the rules were. My challenge is I've trained clinicians who won't publish. But part of the other reason that we've survived is we FSM treats conditions for which there are no good solutions. There is the, the ataxia and the loss of descending inhibition that happens in those myelopathy patients. It's a piece of cake. It's easy. It's in a core seminar. And this spastic diplegia patient, I expected it to last 24 hours. It lasts two weeks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a good face. Yeah. I don't understand that. It's almost better than a backlift and pump. Well, and they couldn't use enough Botox. Okay. And the and pumps have complications. Yeah. And then the same thing with full body pain, with thalamic pain. By the time you give somebody enough gabapentin or Lyrica to deal with thalamic pain, they're so rummy yeah. that they function. So my goal in starting the clinic and training center in... Troutdale in Oregon. I just, I'm 76 on Friday and I just opened a clinic again is to get some of this published. I will, I, FSM will pay people when they submit or have accepted for publication a paper on any condition, a single or collected case report. We will pay them $2,000 for publishing that paper. It is acknowledged, recognized, put on the website. We have to publish. And before you can even submit to an IRB, an investigational review board to do a control trial, you have to have at least a case report or a collective case report already in the literature before you can do a proper control trial. And Nerve pain is easy. Thalamic pain is easy. Phantom limb pain is easy. PTSD, eight sessions in seven weeks. We haven't had any failures yet. I mean, it's... Wow. Oh, well, let me ask you about more common back pain. Okay. Okay. The, the title yeah. of my podcast. So uh, in the world of spine care, some certain structural issues are very challenging. So facet-mediated pain... The standard of care now is radiofrequency neurotomy, which uh, in my observation has had some good results and in other cases, not so much. But the one condition that I think we struggle with a lot is um, discogenic pain, annular tears, posterior disc herniations that aren't surgical, but they cause that episodic knife-like pain in your back when you're bending over and disables people for a week or two, and they just kind of cycle through it. They're not good fusion candidates. Uh, they don't respond well to injections. So two questions in. I'm assuming you have protocols that you can share your experience on, number one. And number two, do you ever observe kind of post-treatment MRI changes? Let's say a disc is protruded slightly on a nerve root and the, a patient or client goes through a treatment protocol or, or course of SFM treatments. Do you observe changes on a structural level that can be verified? There's... 
I'm going to go back to the facet rhizotomy. Okay. Because back when I was in my first busy clinical practice, I ordered more facet blocks from my favorite PM&R doc than anybody in the state because facets were difficult to treat. And that was back in the day when they wouldn't just do the medial branch. They would actually, they were ISIS trained and they would actually go into the facet, Hmm. drop steroids and lidocaine to the challenge with rhizotomies is they don't last. And when the nerves come back, they arborize. So in two to three years, the literature says, yeah, it comes back. And when it comes back, it's difficult. Discogenic pain and neuropathic pain. So the those, those two, there are protocols for discs and we give patients exercises because one of the things that you have to do is get the muscles that are inhibited, the multividi and the rotatories, basically, the close into the spine muscles that are around the disc, you have to get them to exercise to bring circulation to the area. So the only pre and post MRI that I have is on me. So I had a disc bulge L5S1 in my low back from bad, bad, bad body mechanics when I was working on the shoulder. And I had L5 neuropathy. And so nerve pain down my leg. And I had an MRI. And there was this dark, thin, three millimeter bulge, no extrusion. So there was dark and thin. And then so we treated it. I did exercises. The nerve pain went away. I didn't do anything stupid again. And then about four years later, I had an SI joint injury, but we did a lumbosacral MRI to make sure it wasn't the disc again. And there was that same L5S1 disc that was dark and thin, was now white and fat and fluffy and not bulging. And that was four years later, and you would have expected it to be worse. And that's interesting. It's not unheard of for disc protrusions to resorb, and you do an MRI down the road and it's gone, but would be unprecedented would be for a degenerative desiccated disc, for example, car tire that's lost its tread, to regain its tread or to regain its disc height. There is no fix-a-flat for our lumbar disc, unfortunately. So that, I mean, that at least certainly is another eyebrow raiser. And it's an N of one. Yeah. And me, so it's automatically suspect. So would that be the case if we did an N of 10? The challenge is doing pre and post MRIs. And that's, it's money and that's... Yeah, that's, yeah. There's, there's a lot of hurdles for doing that. Okay, walk someone listening through what a session looks like for someone who's never seen a device or been treated before. Oh, that's a good question. You ask good questions. In my world, it starts with a physical history and a physical exam. So FSM patients take, you have to treat the right thing with the right thing. So you do a history. When did this start? What other injuries have you had? What are your symptoms? What makes them better? What makes them worse? So there's the history. Then you do a physical exam. That always, always includes range of motion, sensation, reflexes, and certain orthopedic tests, just like you would do. Right. Then microcurrent is the same kind of current that your body produces on its own. So in three different studies, in animal to in vivo and in vitro, so in, in tissue and in live cultures, just the current by itself increases ATP production by 500%, by five times. That's a good phase. So just the current, okay? But the current is physiologic. In those same studies, it showed that any current level above 500 microamps would level off ATP. And if you went up to 1 milliamp above 1,000 microamps, ATP actually dropped off. Well, tens units are milliamp. So you can't feel the current. I used to use these graphite conducting gloves. Don't do that anymore. So patients have to put up with 
a warm, wet towel, which is very conductive, especially if you're going to treat the spinal cord or a nerve. And you hook the device to the warm, wet towel. And if, for example, you're treating the spinal cord or the thalamus, you hook a contact around the neck, contact around the feet, and you put the negative leads down at the feet, the positive leads at the neck. If you're treating a lumbar disc, you put one contact behind the low back and they lay down on it. And you put the other contact on the abdomen because you're treating the disc. If you're treating nerve pain at the same time, you have to go from where the nerve starts to where the nerve ends. So what the setup looks like will depend on what exactly you're treating. If you're treating the vagus nerve, you go from around the neck to down to the abdomen. And the vagus nerve is a whole other conversation. But anyway, so then the practitioner takes your physical exam and your chief complaint. So if you come in with headaches and neck pain, we treat from the neck to the chest. And you put your hands on the patient's neck and you treat to take care of the upper facets and the lower discs. That makes the muscles relax. And the headache goes away and the neck pain goes away. And if they have nerve pain at the same time, you have the wrap around their neck and you put a wrap around their hand and you have a second machine that just treats inflammation in the nerve and the nerve pain goes away. And that most sessions, most physical therapists have 60 minute sessions. Mine are 60 minutes. I used to do three patients an hour and I would keep three rooms full with one assistant. So what it looks like depends on whether you're seeing probably a third of our practitioners are MDs or DOs. There's naturopaths, physical therapists, acupuncturists, massage therapists, psychiatrists, neurologists, internists, OBGYN veterinarians, because it works on horses too. So there's a great story in the resonance effect about working on a an injured Irish hunter that just makes me smile every time I read that part. All right. I have um, two more questions. I want to be respectful of your time and energy. I know you had a, uh, you're catching this at the end of a long day. I mentioned in the beginning that my friend Marty introduced me, reintroduced me to FSM, but it was within the context of he, um, in the Charlotte area, he had been working with a physician, Dr. Flick in Georgia. Oh, yeah. Yes. So that was kind of where his training was. So Marty has, uh, would rent out these devices that were combo, he called them combo PEMF FSM devices. Right. I never got to talk with him, though, about his general thoughts about what's the difference. Like he said you could run the frequencies through the electromagnetic disks and obtain similar effect. So I don't know. what What kind of is, for someone who's a novice, what's the difference with PEMF? And FSM. So Bart Flick was one of Robert Becker's interns, residents. Becker wrote The Body Electric in the 80s. So he was the reason that we had the study that was done at Mercy St. John's um, Burn Center in uh, Springfield, Missouri in 2003. And finally, I guess it was five or six years ago, Dr. Flick and I met at a meeting and I gave him a mini course in FSM over the weekend. He bought, took home with him to what we call custom cares, little programmable devices. Yes. I think that's what I was sent home with for my ankle years ago. Right. A little custom care. And he used it throughout the week. Now he's an orthopedic surgeon in rural Georgia and sees an incredible amount of diabetic neuropathy, diabetic wounds. So that he left on Monday, Friday night, I got a phone call at like nine o'clock at night, which is midnight in Georgia. And he said, we had a patient today that had a four year chronic diabetic wound seven centimeters across, five millimeters deep, four years. He said, we put the adhesive electrodes around it and ran what we call wound healing. And he said, I watched it granulate from the center out 
that's a good face in two we just kept running it in two hours and it was like so the next monday he ordered 30 units but he has a very quick mind and he has a group of friends that are retired engineers and geniuses and because of his work with becker he had an interest in pulse dmf um that's magnetic electromagnetic frequencies so the combination of the custom care and their what we call a magnetic converter it converts the electrical frequency specific electrical pulses into frequency specific magnetic pulses and the the whole purpose originally was to be able to put those magnetic heads on either side of wraps for patients that were in standard wound care that had compression bandages on their legs. And so you could heal a diabetic wound in a quarter of the time. It's just not that hard. We've I've been doing it since 98. It's just, it never doesn't work. Then we found that you can use it. So I use mine every night to treat um, to improve my vagus nerve, quiet down the nervous system because I, I'm still all excited and it's what five fifteen at night. This is fun, and so I treat that. The challenge that we have with the magnetic converters, the pulse TMF devices, is they're not as good for nerve pain or the spinal cord. They're not good at polarizing things, but for low back pain, neck pain, new injuries. And the electrical current will change an EKG. So when we're treating somebody postoperatively and they're being monitored on an EKG in the hospital, you can't use current because it scrambles the EKG. You can, we found out, you can use the magnetic field and it doesn't touch the EKG. So I've had both my hips replaced. And using the post-operative frequencies, I did not bruise from at all, like not even beige. Wow. My husband broke his hip. We ran acute fracture on the magnetic device while I came in and filled out his advance directive before we even called the ambulance. We ran the fracture protocol. and. He didn't bruise from either the fracture or the hip replacement. And that is a very good face. That's nuts, right? That is nuts. So it sounds like PEMF, FSM, they both have applications. Yes. Okay. Excellent. It's just, I think I could talk to you forever, but. Oh, it's so much fun because you have solutions for people that have no other hope. And you can improve outcomes. So there's a, a large group in India that just published last year a large com- control was retrospective prospective con- trial on low back pain. And the the numbers, the data, p value of 0.005, they didn't have as good, they didn't have good success with neck pain, but then I found out they were running the wrong protocol. So we have to do that again. But in in your world, it's a really low risk because every spinal procedure, every surgery, every RF, every everything that involves anesthesia or needles carries the risk. And this gives you a low-risk way to start. And if this doesn't work, or it doesn't work as fast as you need it to work, you can always go to the next step. But it's a good conservative thing to start with. Well, that is a great summary. Um, It was probably more than I even hoped for. I want to close kind of the last question that I tend to ask my guests and drive them crazy with is I love if you can just share one or two maybe health habits that have served you well through your life, uh, promoted your energy, your longevity, and your well-being? Let's see. Moderation in all things, including moderation. That's the first thing. 
go ahead and spend the extra money and buy organic whatever you can. And then exercise and sleep. Like all of the standard things, drink water, get eight hours sleep, moderation in all things, including moderation, and go for a walk. Well, I think it serves you well. I kind of do wish we had put this on video for YouTube because you said you're in your 70s, but I mean, you're just glowing with energy. And I can tell that you're living out your dharma, fulfilling your passion. And it's, it's so it's so clear. That's the other thing that's important for people. Do what you love and love what you do. And everything else you need will follow. It's that. It's follow your passion. And if you can't, do what you love, then love what you do. And you said earlier, take care of the what and don't worry about the how. Something like that, right? Yes. You do the what and let God or the universe or however you think about that life energy, that the how will show up. What you need shows up. It doesn't always look like what you thought it would look like, but it always shows up. Well, I thank you for showing up on such short notice. I literally just reached out to you and it was amazing that we could pull this off today. And uh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.